0: Today we are missing some of our church family uh, with the Frasers away to England for the next stage in their adoption. Uh, they got their final approval uh, during the week there and God willing will be bringing their little girl home soon. And In God's providence today we're coming to part of the Bible that speaks about the glorious truth that as Christians we are adopted into God's family, that we get to be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Uh, this glorious truth that as Christians we are adopted into God's family is described by uh, the Puritan Thomas Watson as a gospel flower and one which believers can suck much sweetness out of. Uh, That we relate to God not as not as enemies, not even as servants, but as children coming to a father. And we do want to spend some time today sucking sweetness out of this gospel flower. We don't want to spend so much time thinking about what it means to be peacemakers, that this glorious truth of Christian adoption just gets tacked on at the end. But at the same time the Lord Jesus wants us to realise that if we're not committed to being peacemakers then we've no right to claim to be sons and daughters of God. And that flags up right away the importance of what we're looking at today. Jesus isn't expecting some of his followers to be peacemakers and others not to be. Uh, but rather, if we want to be called God's children, we need to be peacemakers. We're going to look at this second last beatitude under three headings this morning. Uh, There's three questions. Uh, and firstly, we want to ask the question: What does a peacemaker look like? If peacemakers are blessed, then it's important for us to know what peacemakers look like. So firstly, what does a peacemaker look like? One of the things that I hope that we can all take away from this series on the Beatitudes is how carefully the Beatitudes are arranged and particularly how they, they start off with us realising where we stand before God uh, and then move on to how we respond to that. Uh, to be pure in spirit, that's the first beatitude. It, it's to realise that spiritually speaking, we have nothing we can bring to the table. We have nothing we can offer to God that will impress him or convince him to let us into heaven and then although it's often used at funerals blessed are those who mourn isn't talking about those who mourn a death because then everyone would be blessed uh, because everyone mourns in that way but rather it's about mourning over our sin not just intellectually accepting that we're sinners but mourning over that fact this then leads to the third beatitude uh, to, to meekness meekness before God and before others uh, meekness which is really stopping pretending we're something that we're not and then comes the, the high point of the Beatitudes in many ways we can think of those first three Beatitudes as working up one side of a, a pyramid and at the top of the pyramid we have verse six blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied realizing how empty we are before god as those first three beatitudes do uh, must lead to us crying out for the righteousness of jesus christ as the writer of rock of ages put it Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me saviour or I die. In other words the first three Beatitudes are about our realisation of what we need. While that great central Beatitude in verse 6 is about that need being satisfied. So the first three Beatitudes are realising our need of righteousness. The fourth Beatitude is about God's provision of righteousness. And then going down the other side of the pyramid, we have pictures of what the saved person looks like. It's not that the believer moves on from being poor in spirit, from mourning over sin and from being meek. These things remain the inner qualities of the believer But the rest of the Beatitudes describe how these inner qualities affect our lives in practical ways. And so the true Christian is merciful, is pure in heart and is a peacemaker. In fact, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, whose two volumes on the Sermon on the Mount have been inspirational for many, goes even further than that. Uh, when it comes to how these Beatitudes are arranged. Uh, And he sees a direct connection between each of these two sets of three. Uh, I'll show show you what he he means. He says that for us to be truly merciful, we have to be pure in spirit. Because if we think we deserve anything from God, then we're unlikely to be merciful to others. Uh, Then he takes the next one in each set and points out that we're unlikely to be pure in heart, if we don't mourn over the impurity of our hearts. And finally, if we think of what a peacemaker is, he says that we will find that they are meek people. Uh, They aren't always pushing to get their own way or or steamrolling over other people. And if someone isn't meek, then they're unlikely to be a peacemaker. And I think that that's helpful to see a connection between being meek and being a peacemaker. To realize that meekness in relation to other people is the necessary starting point to being a peacemaker. But practically speaking, then, what does a peacemaker look like? Sometimes it can be helpful to ask what, what is the opposite of something? So what's the opposite of a peacemaker? Well, Sinclair Ferguson, in a small but very helpful book on the Beatitudes, puts it like this. He says, Many churches are destroyed because the members or leaders shirk their responsibility precisely here. They do not regard the work of peacemaking to be appropriate to them. Their own wisdom and their own ways are more important than God's will which is for peace and harmony among his people. So what's the opposite of a peacemaker? The opposite of a peacemaker is someone whose own wisdom and whose own ways are more important than God's will, which is for peace and harmony among his people. So in other words, someone who isn't meek, uh, someone who is always pushing for their own way, is unlikely to be a peacemaker. Uh, We've talked about meekness, uh, and it's a while since we looked at the beatitude about meekness, Uh, but we saw then that the meek person is the person who has accepted God's estimate of their life. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. It's not the opposite of strength but it is the opposite of self-importance. That's important to remember as well, that meekness is not the opposite of strength, but it is the opposite of self-importance. The world tells us, look out for number one. People around us steamroll over others to get what they want. But Jesus tells us, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all. And servant of all and that might mean having to unlearn some things if you've become a Christian leader in life Uh, particularly if you, you you've always been used to fighting your corner if confrontation has been your default attitude if if you've never been used to ignoring or turning a blind eye to something that someone has said to you or, or, or done to you. It might also mean having to unlearn things you've learned if you've been shaped by Christians who, who for all their qualities couldn't be described as peacemakers. Because sad to say there are Christian circles where peacemaking isn't valued Uh, where where peacemakers are even scorned. So we've asked what the opposite of a peacemaker is. It's also important to to think about what a peacemaker isn't in case we we could go away with the wrong picture. A peacemaker isn't someone who doesn't have a principled bone in their body. Uh, A peacemaker isn't someone who tries to keep everyone happy no matter what. Just because someone is easygoing rather than forceful, that doesn't make them a peacemaker. The Beatitudes are not natural characteristics. Some people by nature hate any kind of confrontation, but that does not make them peacemakers. But rather a peacemaker is someone who sees peace in the church as more important than them getting their own way as individuals. If Sinclair Ferguson is right when he says uh, that those who aren't peacemakers consider their own wisdom and their own ways more important than peace and harmony among God's people then a peacemaker is someone who sees peace and harmony among God's people as more important than their own wisdom and their own ways. Now that maybe raises the question of whether we should assume that Jesus is primarily speaking about the church when he, said, when he says blessed are the peacemakers because of course uh, there, there, are, there are many er- areas of life we could potentially apply this to uh, but, but, but would we be right if we focus particularly on the church here? Uh, And that brings us to our second question this morning, which is, where should we be peacemakers? Where should we be peacemakers? Now, in a sense, even to ask that question is to answer it. Is there any area of life where a Christian shouldn't seek, if possible, to be a peacemaker? Uh, Of course not. A Christian should be a peacemaker in every area of life, among non-Christians as well as among their fellow Christians. But there are two reasons why I think peacemaking in the church is primarily in view, or at least two reasons why we want to direct most of our application in that direction. And the first reason is that the Bible talks about peace in the church differently than it talks about peace in the world. The Bible talks about peace in the church differently than it does talk about peace in the world. There are many commands in the Bible for us to be at peace when it comes to our fellow Christians. When it comes to peace with those outside the church, peace isn't always an option. No matter how much we might want to live at peace with someone, there may be people who just don't want to. People who are so offended by what we believe and how we live that they refuse to be at peace with us. Or those who we've hurt in the past and they refuse to forgive us no matter what we do. Or people who just don't like us. And the Bible acknowledges these things when talking about those outside the church. It says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. It's saying, if unbelievers refuse to live at peace with you, make sure it's not because you're doing something offensive or you have a bad attitude or you are refusing to acknowledge your sin against them. But when it comes to relationships inside the church, there's no if possible. There's no qualifications. There's no as far as it depends on you. There is no concept in the New Testament of two Christians living permanently unreconciled with each other. I'll say that again. There there is no concept in The New Testament of two Christians living permanently unreconciled with each other. Of two Christians avoiding each other. With those outside the church there are times when we'll have to say I've done all that I can but the person just isn't responding and there's nothing more that can be done. But inside the church we should never just accept disunity or a breakdown in relationships. If the two parties can't be reconciled then God in his wisdom has provided others who can mediate. Peace in the church is too important for us to let disharmony fester. And so when the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And if they find that too hard, he says in the next verse, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel. In other words, he's, looking, he's asking for a leader in the church to help them reconcile their differences. And even acknowledging that they won't be able to reconcile those differences unless uh, this, this church leader, this true companion, steps in and helps them. So certainly we're to seek to be peacemakers outside the church uh, as well as inside But we have to acknowledge that among unbelievers, peace may not always be an option. But inside the church, a lack of peace is never something we should resign ourselves to. So... One reason to focus on peacemaking in the church is because the Bible speaks about peacemaking in the church differently than it does peacemaking in the world. The second reason, still under our middle question today, the second reason I think peacemaking in the church is primarily where we need to apply this is because in the church, living at peace with one another is bigger than us. In the church, living at peace with one another is bigger than us. It's not just that it would be nice if we all got along. It would be, but but it's more than that. Because peace in the church is about the glory of Jesus Christ and it's about his reputation in the world. On his last night on earth, Jesus prayed that his followers would be united so that the world might know that his father had sent him. Our world is marked by backbiting by envy, by divisions, by rivalries and so Jesus prays that as Christians we would be different, not just because it would be nice if everyone got along, but so that the world would believe that he is who he says he is. After all, if Jesus' people are just like the world, if those inside the church are no different from outside Uh, if those inside the church are at each other's throats or dividing into groups or falling out with each other what does that say about Jesus it says that he's not really that great it says that he doesn't really have the power to change people's lives And so for Jesus' reputation before the watching world as well as for our own spiritual good we must be committed to being peacemakers in the church even when it feels like one of the hardest things we're called to do. Because Jesus himself says, John 17, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And by this uh, they will know that the Father has sent me if you have peace with one another. So this means that we won't simply think about things in terms of how they affect us as individuals because we'll no longer be so concerned about our individual good, but rather the good of the whole body of Christ. The Apostle Paul ties those two things together uh, in Colossians 3.15 when he says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Notice that the peace of Christ is what's to rule in our hearts not our own cravings or desires or reputation. Lord Jones says that the explanation of all quarrelling and discord is when we look at events and decisions and things people have said and ask is this fair to me? Am I being given my rights and dues and recognition? When we ask how is this affecting me? What is this doing to me? And if our focus is on us and our preferences and our reputation, then we'll never be peacemakers. So where are we to be peacemakers? Everywhere. But especially in the church. Because living at peace in the church is something that Jesus expects us to be able to do. And because it's bigger than us as individuals. It's about the reputation of Jesus Christ in the world. Thirdly and finally this morning, why are peacemakers called sons of God? Why are peacemakers called sons of God? Here's a question. Can we become children of God by peacemaking? How would you answer that? Can someone become a child of God by by being a peacemaker? On the face of it, it would be possible to understand Jesus to be saying that. That we're, we're not children of God by nature, but the way for us to become children of God is by being peacemakers. It would be possible to understand Jesus as saying that, but, but is that what he's saying? Well, certainly we're not children of God by nature. Uh, which, which is quite shocking to, to many people uh, to hear that for the first time. The opening chapter of John's Gospel, speaking by Jesus, says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And to speak about becoming children of God implies that we are not by nature children of God. Sometimes people talk about the the universal brotherhood of man, or they, they sing songs about every man is my brother. But the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus says to the Pharisees, You are of your father, the devil. The Bible is clear that we are not automatically children of God. And so we must become children of God. But John's Gospel is pretty clear that we become children of God by believing in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus rather than in your religious works or your good life, you're not yet a child of God. Uh, John tells us that we become children of God only by believing in Jesus. And obviously, Jesus himself isn't saying anything in the Beatitudes that contradicts that. But rather, what Jesus is saying is that our commitment to peacemaking shows whether we really are God's children. Our commitment to peacemaking shows whether we really are God's children. Just like last week when we were thinking about the fact that our service to God has to actually cost us something. It's not that costly service to God makes us Christians. But part of the evidence that we are Christians is that we're willing to serve God even when it costs us. And when we are committed to being peacemakers. In fact being a peacemaker is one of those ways that serving God costs us. There is a cost to biting our tongue when someone says or does something that annoys us and we want to react. There's a cost to that. There's a cost to to giving way on an issue for the sake of, of peace and unity. There is a cost to being friendly to someone who has said hurtful things to us in the past. Whether they've said it to us directly or whether uh, it's been passed on to us that this is what they've said about us. To go to that person and be friendly and not to have a frostiness there. There is a cost to that. Uh, there's a cost to, to not holding on to things people have said about us or done to us uh, Maybe we are friendly to the person, but but we always hold in our mind, we remember what they said two years ago, four years ago, seven years ago. We remember what they said. We're not letting go of what they said. There is a cost to letting go of that and not bringing it up and not not even thinking it in our heads about them. There's a cost to not wanting to see people suffer for what they've said or, or done to us. Being committed to peacemaking is costly. But think of what it cost the Lord Jesus to make peace between God and us. Think of the tremendous price that he paid on the cross. He didn't say that the price of peacemaking was too high. And will we turn around and say that the the much lower price that we have to pay is too much? So to go back to your question, why are peacemakers called sons of God? Because God is the God of peace. That's how he's described numerous times in the New Testament. And if we are his children, we'll take on the family likeness. Think of how it works in human adoption. A child is adopted into a family that they formerly had no connection with, usually, uh, a family that they're, they're not related to in any way. But over time that adopted child starts to take on the family likeness. Not in how they look but in how they speak. How they act, their mannerisms, their idiosyncrasies. Being part of a family will change them. And it should be the same with being part of God's family. More and more as the Holy Spirit works in our lives through his word, we'll take on the family likeness. So it's not that God looks around for people to adopt into his family and says, Oh, there's a peacemaker, I'll adopt that one. There's another peacemaker, I'll I'll take that one. Of course not. But rather God adopts us when there is nothing good in us, when there is nothing attractive in us when there's only our need and our sin. But over time, being part of God's family will change us. He changes us. He moulds us. He shapes us. And more and more people should be able to look at us and say, he's just like his father. She's just like her father. Not our earthly fathers, but our heavenly one. So that's what it means that peacemakers are called children of God. It means that the Holy Spirit's work in us is clear. It means that our claim to be part of God's family is backed up by our actions. And yet the reverse is also true. If we don't show much interest in peacemaking... If we, if we keep a distance between ourselves and our fellow Christians, if we're happy to keep our relationships superficial, uh, which as we'll see tonight makes peace very fragile, even before there's a disagreement, if we're more likely to pour petrol on a fire rather than water, then it does call into question whether we really know the God of peace. And we don't just have the the, the option of saying, well the other Beatitudes are are true of me, so it doesn't matter if this one doesn't. Because all the Beatitudes are connected. Uh, We've already seen the connection between meekness and peacemaking. Uh, But this Beatitude is connected to others as well. Uh, Last time we saw uh, in the previous beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart. And we see the connection between being pure in heart and being peacemakers in 1 Peter 1.22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Having a pure heart is, is one of the things that helps us love one another or, or we could go back to that, that top, uh, beatitude, top of the pyramid about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Uh, and then we could go to Isaiah thirty two seventeen, which tells us that the fruit of righteousness will be peace. Yes, you say you've, you've believed in Jesus and received his righteousness, but, but the Bible says that the fruit of righteousness will be peace. So where's the evidence of that in your life? So this is massive. Whether we pursue peacemaking or ignoring it will make a huge difference, not just in our lives, but in the life of the church and before the watching world. Peacemaking is so important that we can't claim to be Christians if it's not important to us. And in fact, this is such a vital topic that we're going to come back and look at it again in our evening service with more of a focus on practically how can we live this out. But for now I'll leave you with an illustration. It's an illustration of Ephesians 4, 3, which says we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Imagine a man out collecting firewood. He finds a good supply of sticks, but they're all different shapes and sizes. And so he ties them together with a bit of twine and easily carries them home. So it is in the church. We are a varied bunch. How will Christ carry us home to heaven? He ties us together with the bond of peace. Cut that bond and you cut the cord that Christ himself has tied. Can you honestly say that you've sought the peace of Christ's church Have you been willing to forego your own preferences for that goal? If so, then be encouraged, because it is evidence that you've been adopted into God's family. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Amen. We'll close by singing from Psalm 133b. Psalm 133b, it's a prayer For brothers and sisters in Christ to dwell together in unity. But it has also long been understood as a prophecy of the Holy Spirit being poured out. Verse 2, like precious ointment poured on the head and flowing down. So where does peace come from? It's not something we can work up. But ultimately it comes from the God of peace. To those who know the Prince of Peace and is poured out on us by the spirit of peace. So Psalm 133b, let's stand and sing praise.